Back in 1989, uh, the third Indiana Jones movie came out. It's kind of weird to say that because uh, I, I think to myself, wow, the third one, and it was 1989, it doesn't seem that long ago, and some of you are asking, who's Indiana Jones? Yeah, although they did recently have, you know, another Indiana Jones movie out. But the third movie that came out was called Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And in that movie, I'm not going to go into all the details of it, but Indiana Jones, the hero, even if you've not seen the movie, if you can try and picture this in your mind, he's in this, these caves, and he's, he's searching for the Holy Grail. That was the whole thing. But there were lives at stake, and he was working his way through, and he'd been given these instructions and so he comes to the edge of this cave opening and he finds himself right up against the edge of this, this huge chasm. And he looks down and, and, and far below him, he can barely see the bottom, is nothing but rocks. And the distance across is so far that, that there's no way he can jump it. There's no bridge. There's no vines hanging down. There's, there's nothing uh, that he can grab onto. But he's been given instructions of how he is to cross the chasm. And the instructions he's given are, take a step of faith. Take a step of faith. And so in the movie, he stands there a second, he takes a deep breath, he closes his eyes, and he goes. And rather than falling to his amazement and delight, suddenly he realizes that there's a stone bridge that goes across the chasm that moments before he couldn't see. And he's able then to, to walk on a cross and, of course, complete his mission and, and, and the whole thing. Uh, but that's an illustration that I want us to think about today because the title of this sermon this morning is The Bridge. And, and we're going to be talking about this idea of what God has done to bridge the gap between you and I. Uh, through life, uh, as we walk through, it's interesting how we talk about our lives. We talk about walking through life. Uh, life has been compared uh, to a journey uh, so many different times, and especially the Christian life often is compared to a journey. And so we have books uh, written such as John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress or C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce, or we could go on and name other books where they tried to use the analogy uh, of a journey or, or of walking a path or a trail to picture the Christian life uh, as we go through it uh, together. Uh, and I think about that and I realize that Jesus himself uh, carried that analogy in much of the way that he talked. In fact, uh, when he recruited his first disciples, uh, there were two words in particular uh, that he used uh, to call them. What were those words? Follow me, follow me. Those two words in themselves carry this idea of someone walking a path, do they not? Jesus says, I'm going this way Follow me. And so the disciples were called to get in line behind Jesus and go wherever he would happen to go. It was Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu who once said, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. What he meant was that if you're going to get anywhere, you have to take that first step. You have to begin. So what is that first step for us? as followers of Jesus? And where does the way of Jesus lead us? That's what we're going to be looking at over the next six weeks or so. We're starting into a new series, and we're entitling that series Steps. You know, a very appropriate idea. What are the steps 
uh, that people need to know and learn uh, in regard to uh, knowing Jesus and, and following Jesus. Uh, what are those steps? Um, as I think about this and I think about uh, our, our idea of the bridge, uh, that idea kind of came out of what we teach our kids when they're going uh, on Mexico mission trips. And so when I said the bridge, bridge, probably a bunch of them over here all went, bing, bing, bing. Okay, I know what that's about. Now, we had to memorize that. We had to learn the bridge, and they do. So for some, and others of you maybe who've gone through this, some it's going to seem familiar. I hope even if you've never heard of the bridge, what we're gonna talk about today is familiar to you. Uh, but I think it's important for us uh, always to, to come back and to review and to think about uh, what God has done for us and the impact that that has or should have on our lives. And so we're gonna walk our way through this. We're gonna step onto the bridge and, and, and see where it takes us, okay? So the starting point for us today, the starting point is God. In fact, for anything, anywhere, ever, the starting point is God. Uh, we may not realize that. Most of the world maybe doesn't realize that or understand that, but nevertheless, it's true. In fact, the first four words of the Bible in Genesis 1-1 are what? First four. In the beginning, God. That's the foundational truth. I think it's amazing that, that God in his inspiration as, as the writers wrote the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments, and as uh, those who came after them compiled those together, you know, it only makes sense that you'd start with Genesis, which talks about creation, because that verse says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, but what a fitting place, it, foundational to us, is to understand that God is the first mover. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, I decided to do something, or, or there was this or that or the other thing, or, you know, whatever. But in the beginning, God. And God created we're told uh, the heavens uh, and the earth. It all began with him. In fact, Genesis 1 and 2 make clear to us that God created, and more than that, that the pinnacle, you know, the acme, the focus of his creation was and still is people. For God and his creation, people are what it's all about. People are the only things in creation that God created in his own image. Okay, And part of being then in the image of God is that he created us to be choice makers. Now, it's a, it's a big deal. I mean, we have a God who is, is so powerful uh, that even in his sovereignty, uh, he could create people who could make choices like he himself makes choices. You know, God didn't have to, re to, to create. It wasn't required of him that, that he would do that. I think sometimes people think, you know, and, and we kind of get this idea, well, God was lonely, and so he decided to create people. No, not at all. God, by his nature, is a creator. We see that in, in Scripture. Uh, but God didn't have to create us. He made a choice. Uh, he decided to do things, and, and we see his choice over, let there be light. Let there be, he, he speaks uh, into creation uh, these different elements uh, and the foundations of our world. But each time, it's a choice that he makes. I think I'll do it this way. 
And so this God who is a choice maker created us to be choice makers. And so we find in Genesis then the, the story of how he placed Adam and Eve in the garden and he placed in the center of that garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and if you're like me, if you read that story, at some point in your life, you've kind of thought, why did he do that? Wouldn't things have just been so much better if God had just not put that tree there? Well, the point is God didn't want to create robots. He didn't want to, to make people who, who just, uh, you know, always did the right thing because they were programmed to do that. In fact, when we think about love and the whole concept of love, uh, love can't exist if there's no choice involved. Of what value is love? If I create a robot and it says to me, Claire, you're such a great guy. I love you. I'll do everything for you. You know, that's not love if I program it to say that. And so God created these choice makers and, and, and the focal point of that choice was in that tree in the garden where he said, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but this tree, you don't eat from that one. This tree, you don't even touch it, okay? And, and we know the story without going into the rest of it that they, they made a choice. They chose against their creator. They chose to go ahead and eat of that fruit. They broke everything. They broke their relationship with creation. They broke their relationship with each other. And most, most terrible was that they broke their relationship with God. And yet God in his grace and mercy didn't want to leave them in that condition. And as we think about that, then the way we talk about that sometimes is we say that Adam and Eve sinned. You know, sin is not a word we use much, but what they did was they disobeyed. Okay, and even when we say they, they, they disobeyed, we think, oh, okay, people disobey, you know, what's the big deal? Uh, but, but it's more, they betrayed God. They became traitors of God. And it wasn't just them, but it's every one of us since then. In fact, both in the Old and New Testament, this truth we find is mentioned and talked about uh, our condition and what we find ourselves in. And so in Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him, and Isaiah's talking about the Messiah to come, Jesus. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. In Romans 3, 23 and 24, the Apostle Paul says something similar when he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This sin has resulted in death or separation from God. It is a chasm that we need to cross, but we can't see the way. We can't create a way in and of our own power, we're incapable of getting across. And that is our predicament as we stand before God. There's a verse in the Bible that concisely lays this out. And, and for those who've been through the bridge illustration, it's the most important part of this illustration that we learn. And that's Romans 6.23. And that verse says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, in Christ Jesus our Lord, or, or some translations will say through Christ Jesus our Lord, and both, uh, both are correct in terms of, of the concept. And so as we look at this, this, pat, this verse that, that Paul has written in Romans, 
I want to break it out in three uh, phases or three, three phrases uh, of that verse for us to look at. And the first is this, uh, the wages of sin is death. It's, it's the bad news, okay? So, you know, you hear those jokes, you know, okay, you want the good news or the bad news, you know? I don't know, I usually start with the bad news because I think then if the bad news is bad, I need something to cheer me up, you know? Uh, so in this case, we get the bad news first. The wages of sin is death. And usually when we think of this word wages, you know, we usually think of something like a paycheck. In fact, when I think of wages, I'm always thinking of, uh, uh, of something good. You know, I get paid, that's a good thing, you know, that, that sort of thing. But wages uh, is more of a neutral word than that because the word wages uh, really means uh, that you earn something, okay? Or another way of saying that is that you get what you deserve. And so a wage can be a good thing like your paycheck or a wage can be a bad thing like if you decide to go speed in your car over in Junction City and the, and the policeman pulls you over and you get a ticket. Well, that's your wage. You earned that. You did something that deserved uh, the outcome. And so in this case, we find again that, that it's not something good because it's the wages of sin. Uh, what we see here is that we've done something bad and there's a price to be paid. Um, and when we say we've done something bad or, or wrong or that, it, it, it's not, you know, it's not like when I was a kid and, and, I, and I got a hold of my sister's Chatty Cathy doll and, and knocked its head off. Uh, you know, okay, I'll tell you the story. So, so Chatty Cathy, I don't know if any of you remember Chatty Cathy, but Chatty Cathy was this little doll that, uh, and, and when I say little, it was, don't think Barbie, it was, it was bigger than that. It was like a baby, uh, but it was Chatty Cathy doll. And when it stood up, uh, its, its eyes were open. When you laid it back, they had weights in there so that the, eyes would, the, the eyelids would come down. And so it'd stand up, it was open, it would lay down, they'd be closed, so the baby's sleeping. And it also had a weighted thing uh, for, for a little uh, recorded deal in its, uh, in its chest somewhere that when you held it up, it would go, Mama, you know, like that. I don't know why they never had him say daddy. What's the deal with that anyway? It was, it was the 50s, you know, 60s, yeah, what do you do? So anyway, um, I was in the mood for playing army man that day and I had no army man to play with. So I grabbed a couple of things. I mean, we didn't have GI Joes or any of that kind of stuff. We had to make it up as we went, you know? So, so I grabbed the Chatty Cathy doll and we had a battle. And uh, I wound up knocking her head off, stuck it back on again, uh, but, and boy, did I get a spanking for that. Um, let me tell you, uh, that was rough. But uh, it was never quite the same. Uh, now, one of its eyes was permanently up. And, and when you laid it down and you brought it back up, it would go, <laughs> just a growly noise. I'm sure my sister uh, was traumatized for the rest of her life over that whole thing, or at least her childhood, probably went to counseling for it. But uh, I just, you know, it, and I think about that and I think, okay, you say that was bad and I got a spanking for it. We're not talking that kind of bad. We're not talking, you know, was it premeditated? Well, kind of, yeah, because, you know. But it, we're not talking that kind of, we're talking absolute betrayal here. Uh, we're talking, uh, we're the villain. We're talking the God who created us and loves us. We have so turned our back on him that it is like saying, you're dead to me. 
It's like saying, you don't no longer exist to me. And that creates then this, this chasm, this distance between us and God that, that we can't do anything about it. And, and we are guilty, we are, we are separated from him and we're told then that, that we have all sinned in this way. And you might think, well, I've never done anything like that. I mean, I've always been a pretty decent person, really, you know? And, and, and we as Christians sometimes kind of come at it that way. You know, somehow we think in our mind, because we compare ourselves, I know a dozen other people who are way worse than me. In fact, I'm a pretty good person, you know? I, I, I mean, I, I do most things right, you know, so God shouldn't be too upset with me. In fact, he should be happy to get me, you know. You know and we start taking our mind that way, you know. And, and Paul says, no. In fact, at one point, Paul said, you know, here is a trustworthy saying that should be accepted by all. Christ died for sinners of whom I am the worst. Now we can think, and I read that passage, you can think, well, of course, Paul, because you persecuted the church and a lot of Christians died because of you. But he doesn't say, okay, folks, I'm talking about me here for a second, so listen up. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. In other words, we should all say this. Christ died for sinners of whom I am the worst. I don't look at other people. I come to the realization that my betrayal my sin has completely separated me from him. In fact, James, Jesus' half-brother says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. We're all guilty of that. John, Jesus' disciple, says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us for our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So again, the truth is that we have all sinned and the wages of sin is death. And death, that word means separation. If you've ever been to a funeral where the casket is there, I did one recently. In fact, it was one of the first open casket uh, scenarios I, I've, I've been in in terms of funerals for some time. Um, and you see the body there and you realize, why isn't that body up and walking around? Because its spirit has been separated from the body. Death has occurred, separation. And it's not just physical death that Paul's talking about here. It's spiritual death that our spirit would be separated for all eternity from God. We usually call that hell. We don't like to think about hell. We don't really use that word too much anymore. I, I don't usually, you don't catch me much on a Sunday morning yelling out, you're all going to hell. You know, it's a real positive message. Nevertheless, Without Jesus, it's true. 
And whatever you picture as hell, whether you think it's, you know, a fiery lake or, you know, or, or whatever else that, that, that scripture does paint in, in some ways, the truth is the worst part of hell is a separation from God. The author of life, to be separated from him is nothing other than death. Even those people who, who don't acknowledge him, who don't recognize, who say they're an atheist and they don't believe in a God, are still being blessed by him each day with the very breath they, they draw. Well, that's some pretty rotten news <laughs> if we only stopped with that first phrase. But there's a second phrase here, and this is the good news. We've had the bad news. Now here comes the good news. The gift of God is eternal life. Hallelujah, right? What an awesome Thing. It's an amazing thing that God loves us so much that he's unwilling to leave us trapped on the other side of the chasm, okay? Trapped facing certain death. In his love, he has decided to give us a gift. And I believe that Paul was very intentional here in his use of the word gift, and he wants to use that word in its most technical and strictest sense. A gift is not something that you earn. A gift is not something even that you deserve. And sometimes I think we don't get that. I think we fall into this kind of Santa Claus mode, you know, about God. You know, you know the song, he's making a list, he's checking it twice, gonna find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. Creepy. You know, and what's the, what's the idea there behind the song? It's that if you're not good, you're gonna get a lump of coal instead of gifts. So what do you have to do? You have to earn the gifts that Santa Claus brings, right? And so that we have this mindset and it kind of fits our whole idea of justice, uh, which again is something that God has given us. Uh, you know, justice tells us there's no free lunch. And so, you know, and, and so we, and we all have this kind of attitude, you know, when it comes to your birthday or, or to Christmas, um, you know, we expect to get gifts. I mean, what would it be like if you came to your birthday and nobody gave you anything? You'd be upset. You'd be thinking, nobody loves me. I don't care that my mother suffered to bring me into the world. You know, that would, yeah, that would be, you know, our, our attitude, well, well, why do we deserve? What did we do to deserve that? Or Christmas time, you know, same sort of thing. It's not that kind of gift. That's not what's being talked about here. Instead, it's more like uh, if you've ever had this experience, you know, and I have, that, that someone comes up to you one day, a friend of yours or, or whatever, and they, and they say, you know, uh, I, I was in the store the other day and I saw this thing and I thought of you. And so I bought it, and, and I'd like to give it to you. Here's a gift. Or maybe you had a need, and you expressed that need. Without any expectation, you just said, oh, man, we're really struggling with whatever, or we need this thing. And out of the blue, someone comes up and says, here, take mine. Here, I'm buying you this because you need it, because I love you, because I care about you. 
How does that make you feel? I know for me, when that's happened with me, I, I feel awful. <laughs> it's a terrible thing. Why should I feel awful? It's because, again, we don't, we're not used to that kind of thing. Because you know, I'm immediately thinking, oh man, I didn't, I didn't get you anything. You know, I, you know, it's not my birthday. It's not Christmas or, or anything. Like, and you, you've given me this thing. I don't deserve this. That's, that's what I think. Of course, then your mind goes to other bad places, and I think, now I'm going to have to buy them a gift. <laughs> How dumb is that? To just be able to accept it and say, oh, thank you. I, I don't know what to say. And, I, and I've said those words before in, in those kinds of situations. But that's just a small picture of what has been done for us. God has given us a gift. We didn't expect it, didn't even know we needed it. In fact, he gave it even when many of us couldn't have cared less about God. Paul tells us, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still his enemy, his, while we were still traitors to the one who created us and loves us most, Christ died for us. So God gives us this gift, and it's a gift that is beyond imagine imagining. It's the gift of eternal life. And now instead of the certain death that we deserve, God offers us eternal life. Which brings us to the last phrase, and that is that we receive this gift in Christ Jesus our Lord, or through Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of eternal life that God wants to give us then comes at a cost. I mean, if you know Jesus' story, you know that it does. The gift, we talk about, I hear people say, um, you know, God offers you salvation. It's a free gift, which is kind of funny to me. Why do we have to put the word free on the front of gift? Doesn't a gift by its nature mean that it's free without strings attached? But we say that for emphasis. But in the end, we really know, or we should know, that it wasn't free. It's, it's free to us. But it still cost God dearly. If God determined that the wages of sin is death, then who is going to pay the price? It should be the person who sinned, right? The one who's guilty should pay the price. When we convict someone in a court of law, and the judge says, okay, he's guilty. He's gonna spend 20 years in jail. Now, who's gonna pay the price? You know, the courtroom, all the people in there, they don't start looking around at each other and going, oh, I hope it's not me. They know who. There's a guy sitting up there who was on trial. How stunned would that courtroom be if the judge said, I find you guilty. I sentence you to 20 years in jail. Call the bailiff, have them take me away because I'm going to jail to pay the price. That has never happened. I don't think that ever will happen in terms of our courtrooms. And yet, that's what God did. 
something even far greater than that. That we have been declared guilty and God has said, but I'm going to pay the price. And so he became one of us. He appeared in human flesh as his own son, Jesus, which kind of messes with your mind a little bit when you think about it, that Jesus is God. I mean, Jesus even tried to describe, uh, explain that to his disciples when they asked you. Know, one of them one day asked him, Lord, show us the Father, John 14. Show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus just looked at him and said, have I been with you such a long time and you still don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one, is what he said. And they were kind of scratching their heads and going, okay, I didn't see that coming, you know, which they, they kind of should have, but didn't. And, but it's hard for us to understand, you know. But the truth is, he became one of us. And that's what Paul talks about in Philippians 2 uh, when, when he talks about Jesus emptying himself of his Godhood. I don't understand that. I just have to accept the words as they come and know this was the price he paid. And, and it was a terrible enough price to pay to become one of us and live among us and experience all the terrible things you know, that, that we put each other through. But then this one who had never sinned, had never disobeyed, had never betrayed, had never become a traitor, was not the villain He's killed. And, and, and unless we don't catch that, he allowed himself to be killed. Because the truth is, just like the old hymn says, he could have called 10,000 angels and stopped it in a heartbeat. But instead he said to his father, not my will, but yours be done. Someone has to pay the price. And Jesus said, here I am. And they put him on a cross. Most terrible way to die. And he died in our place. When I think of the cross, Twyla and I were talking today, uh, I was thinking, Gabe, we should have probably put that big old cross back up here in the middle but to picture the cross. When I think of the cross, and many times I'll do this in the midst of our time of communion because I think it's a powerful image, at least it is for me, I try to picture myself on the cross. It should have been me on the cross. You see yourself hanging there but he took my place. He took my place on that cross. But that wasn't the end. Because he didn't deserve to die, death could not hold him. And he arose from the dead and was seen by those who had witnessed his death and then witnessed his resurrection and it blew them away. How could it not? 
In fact, then the resurrection of Jesus becomes the focal point of our faith, of Christianity. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? See, there were some in, the, in that day who were saying that, well, maybe Christ rose from the dead, but nobody else does. Death is the end. There's a lot of people today who, who say that death is the end. That's, that's all there is. But Paul says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If there is no resurrection, why follow Jesus? He just becomes another great teacher. And of the things he teaches, he talks about sacrifice and loving your enemies and all these things. And we think, well, that's an awful way to live. If there's nothing beyond this life, why not eat, drink, and be merry? You know, Or at least look out for myself and take care of me before anybody else. To follow Jesus and take up my cross daily and sacrifice for him. If it's only for this life, where's the meaning? More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, he says. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Our loved ones, you know, you hear people say all the time, I can hardly wait. You know, Wednesdays, you know, the most wonderful thing when we get to heaven one day is to be in Jesus' presence and see him. Second thing is <laughs> to see those we loved who died in him. But if Christ is not raised, then those who have died before us are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That idea of first fruits, the first, the best, the most important. Because he arose, we too will rise. Death is not the end. We have this promise that like Jesus rose from the dead, so will we. And I think about this and I think, so, so if you are someone, I'm just talking someone in the world out there who wants to take down Christianity, wants to attack it, wants to argue that it's not true, that it didn't happen, this is where you take your attack. The resurrection. Don't get in an argument with somebody over whether creation was the six days or not. Or whether Noah you know, floated the whole world of animals on the ark. Or Jonah was in the belly of a big fish. You know, don't, don't argue even that, that Jesus did miracles or that, that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead or walked on water or any of those things. Go to the resurrection. That's where the argument takes place. Go to the eyewitnesses because that's what they're arguing for in the Bible, in the New Testament. 
We saw him die and we saw him rise from the dead. If that's not true, then none of the rest of it matters. But if that is true, it changes absolutely everything. That's why Paul says that we receive the gift of eternal life in Jesus. And then Paul adds one last thing. He names Jesus as our Lord. What does that mean? It means that if we truly believe that we were heading for hell, that place of eternal separation from God, but Jesus bought us back and gave us eternal life, then we should be changed. Our relationship with God changes. I can tell you right now, if one of you saved my life, our relationship would change. You know, if I was walking out here across the railroad tracks with my iPods in and earpods, I don't own any. Okay, if I had my headphones on, Prove my point, didn't I? I'm, I am non-tech. That is terrible. Okay, if, if I, for some reason, was so distracted by the book I was reading, <laughs> and the train's coming down, and I didn't see it, and you dive in front of it and push me to safety, I tell you what, our relationship is going to change. I'm going to be so thankful. I'm going to say, you saved my life. You know? And folks, God has done something so more incredible and powerful than that for us. You know, the understanding that it should have been me on that cross instead of him, but he took my place, should change me. And, and I get it. You know, it, it's not that I'm, I'm perfect. It's not even that under my own power, I can really even then be changed. He gives us his spirit in us, what a great promise. We'll talk about that some more in the series later. But he gives us his spirit to transform us through that power. We are, you know, we, we do so little, really, but we allow that spirit to work in us. We give ourselves to him. And, and we're changed. And it doesn't mean that I'm perfect because I'm, I'm not, you're not. But that was the whole point. Jesus took care of that. That's what he died for. That's why, you know, I, I accept the gift and, and he's my Lord. I give my everything, I give my all, I give my life to him. And step by step, I walk behind him in life and he changes me. So here we are, each one of us. We are the Indiana Jones looking across the chasm, you know? And God is there holding out eternal life and saying, just take a step of faith. He has created a bridge out of a cross. And we're not gonna fall if we trust in that bridge. So he says, trust me. 
And now the only question that remains is, if you haven't crossed that bridge, what's stopping you? Let's pray together. Father, as we consider again what you have done for us, what a gift. What a powerful, powerful gift, Father. The only gift in the world that, that really and truly matters. And so, Father, as we consider this anew today, I pray that by the power of that same Spirit, Lord, that calls us, Lord, that awaits for us, that, that it might empower us. May we, as the choice makers you have made, choose Jesus. Choose to take that step. Choose the cross as our bridge. Choose you as our Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.